Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Welcome back to the Special Education Advocacy Podcast with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow and I'm so happy you're here. We're going to dive right into today's podcast, which is part two of the podcast featuring Daphne Corder, my dyslexia consultant friend. Daphne's going to talk to us about different conditions that happen comorbidly with dyslexia, like dyscalculia, dysgraphia, ADHD, and a couple more. Not only is Daphne going to talk to us about the conditions themselves, but she's gonna tell us what do we do when they occur? How do we support a child in school when a child presents with these comorbid conditions? You're gonna love today's podcast. Let's hop right in. Happy that you included this next piece yes. to comorbid conditions, related disabilities, um, particularly, I'm really excited to get into this kind of comorbidity with ADHD and, and executive functioning. Okay, that so, one's gonna be, yeah, that one's the most common of the comorbid, uh, comorbid disabilities. It's gonna be that ADHD, but I've put here that oral language, you're gonna have ADHD, that's probably the most common. Then I, I also, there's a lot of people with dysgraphia, so that's that, um, it's not just the writing skills, but it's also putting thoughts on paper. So there's that dysgraphia, of course, the anxiety and shame and depression that happens along with the dyslexia, the frustration they have, and then uh, dyscalculia, which is what my daughter also has, and that is um, a math an issue with numbers because you know math is a language as well and so it is kind of interesting even with with dyscalculia you know sometimes they don't know that she won't know some basic math but then she can do higher level math stuff I, I always wondered I was like you know I'd rather her know the basics than know how to do the square root of a number but um anyways it's it's a it is a disability with numbers and seeing numbers on a number line and some interesting stuff on that. Yeah, it is. It's very fascinating to see yes. the brain works from person to person and areas of strength to areas of strength. Right. So into this ADHD piece, I, I'm really happy that you included this. Um, so as we know, there's three different kinds of ADHD. When we look at the diagnosis, the DSM um, diagnoses, we can have an attentive type, we can have hyperactive type, or we can have both inattentive and hyperactive. My Jack has both combined types. So he has trouble sustaining his attention, um, paying attention in the beginning. And then he also is extremely hyperactive and um, sensory seeking, impulsive, the whole shebang. Um, right. So I love your slide and we, and I'm just going to describe it. Does your child's backpack look like this? Is this actually Lauren's backpack? Actually, it's my other daughter. She, oh. she doesn't have dyslexia, but she has ADHD and that is really her backpack. I love yeah. it. It's like papers coming so. up everywhere. It's actually, maybe there's like a binder or two and maybe even one of those like 
divided, um, like expanding folders, but there's just SHIT coming out everywhere. Even some post-it yes. notes, love it. It's amazing. Yeah, crumpled paper. I oftentimes, before we get into this, I want to say, I oftentimes say to clients when they come into my office, you know, in your particular case, I don't think there's a whole lot that needs to be done besides empathy provoking. Because, you know, parents will say, oh, well, they've got 17 missing assignments and we're two weeks into the semester. Okay, what they need is they not only need the support, which is written into the plan, but they need for the teachers to understand what's happening, what that disconnect is. You know, the teacher, like before, where the teacher said, here, honey, take this note to your mom that says you've got 16 missing assignments. Well, why would you give a student with a backpack that looks like that a note to go home? It's never going to get right. home. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, well and it is. You have to yeah. go into school and say, okay, this, have you ever seen the child's backpack? Let me give you a couple of examples of what ADHD, what dyslexia, what executive dysfunction looks like in my child and go in with really objective, but empathy provoking um, pieces of information and statistics and data so that the school really understands the why behind that mandate that's in the IEP or the 504 plan. So um, right. that's what I have to say about the backpack. Um, let's talk yeah. about ADHD. Okay. So I'll just say that ADHD is going to be very common and it with dyslexia as a comorbidity. Um, the CDC says that uh, almost half of all children with ADHD will also have another learning disability. Um, I wanted this slide I really wanted to put in. Y'all have to look this one up. Um, it is, it talks about uh, the RD means of reading disability and ADHD. And so it just shows you what happens like a typical child. If you have ADHD, you're going to have all these issues with academic impairment. You know, you're going to, some of them become re, uh, retained. So, you know, held back in school, social impairment, occupational impairment, maybe for jobs or something or arrested any criminal record. Well, you add that this slide kind of shows uh, where the typical child, their chances of being in all those categories, then somebody with just a reading disability, just with ADHD, and then you do combined. And of course, you know, um, if you have reading disability and ADHD, of course, your chances of being retained, of having problems, all that just goes up, 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 up. Now, I wanted to have that graph there to show you that the chances of having a lot of issues in school grows with, with that additional comorbidity. And it's not really to scare you, but to say, look, we've got to do something about this early on so that it doesn't go down this path. You can imagine if you were in school eight hours a day and you don't understand what's going on. Can you imagine being at a job just think of your job if you hated your job or you were terrible at your job and that's what you did all day. I mean, yeah. what would you get in trouble with? You know, what would your life look like? That must be exhausting for them right. and feeling that's like such a failure. Piece yeah. Yeah. I, I had never seen that statistic. I, I knew I'd never seen it graphed. That's really right. Crazy. Right. 
Well, and I like this one too, because it, it is a study that was done in 2008 by Imhoff. And I didn't even know there was an international journal of listening. But anyways, that's where it came out. Most of the teaching is done where the teachers are just talking, talking, lecture, and the kids have to listen. So if you have any kind of issues, you know, with ADHD, you're going to have some auditory processing, some listening, you know, listening comprehension, right? They get distracted. Sometimes those areas can be uh, affected. And then you also have the dyslexia that sometimes those areas can be affected. And so, of course, that makes for a very difficult day in class. So that slide just kind of shows how much is required. Now, that being said, this is the biggest thing I want you all to understand. ADHD, even though it's comorbid, it will not explain, and it is not the reason why a child can't decode or read words. So don't let them blame everything on your child's ADHD. I cannot tell you, I have gone in and sometimes I get called to help a family that they didn't even know their child was dyslexic. And every time I have somebody that calls me, because maybe they'll do it because of my clinical background, they'll say, oh, they're having trouble in school. And so the first thing, when I look at that IEP and I see OHI, other health impaired, and I see ADHD, I always say, have you ruled out a learning disability? Are we sure that there is not another explanation here? And of course, when I start digging, I remember I had one boy in, in sixth grade, I think it was fifth or sixth grade, he had ADHD and I was there for, to help with those issues. We found out, I mean, he couldn't read at all. They'd been reading everything to him. And I said, well, why didn't you put him down as dyslexic? If you, why didn't you go down that path and teach him how, well, he just doesn't read. It's because he can't pay attention, you know? And I said, no, that doesn't, there are lots of people with ADHD that can read. So don't let them, if, if there is going to be that ADHD, just like the CDC says, there's probably, there's a good chance there could be a learning disability there. So um, really make sure that you look at that. Now, I will also say, and there are some of you parents out there might be anti-medication and all that. I will tell you from my background as a social worker, I, I'm just going to say my personal opinion is that we have done lots of studies on ADHD. We've known about that medication for years, longer than half the other things my kids have been on and I have been on in, the, in my lifetime. I mean, ADHD medicines, the stimulants have been out there for years and um, we know a lot about them. And for most kids, I think you really need to strongly, strongly consider um, you know, doing something for the ADHD because it'll make the dyslexia intervention very, very difficult. And I also tell people, you know what, there's so many things in life that there's not a pill for that if there was a pill for something <laughs> like ADHD or depression, and it's got all this research, I would do it because there, there's not going to be a pill for the dyslexia. I promise that. Right. Um, so anyways, that's my personal opinion. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, sometimes um, my child takes a lot of Ritalin, like a lot, like double what the kind of baseline standard should be. And so oftentimes a doctor will say, you know, maybe we should reduce this Ritalin or have you ever thought about blah, blah, blah. And I'd like to get the swab that tells you, you know, what react. What body you've done that. 
Yeah, I'd like to. Yeah. But anyway, metabolic. Um, yes. So he, the metabolic panel, right? So, um, but um, I always say it would honest to goodness be child abuse to take him off medication without some other solution, because the amount of times right. that they know to him and those 25 minutes that his fast acting Ritalin is starting to work in his body is just horrific. And I feel so bad for him that he can't control it, you know? And right. so- I would feel terrible for him. Same thing as for him specifically on the weekends. Right. Um, yeah. So another comorbidity is dysgraphia. Tell us what dysgraphia yes. is. So again, that's neurodevelopmental as well. And it manifests in, in um, having sort of an inefficient handwriting. Uh, sometimes it is, you'll see it. Uh, sometimes I've seen it in the DSM. Is it developmental coordination disorder, DCD? You might see that sometimes. Um, it can also be called, of course, dysgraphia or specific learning disability in written expression. So um, it's just that storing, retrieving orthographic codes, sort of your mind seeing the letter, the sound, the word, and having it come out through your writing. And so that's where um, that is sort of the basis of dysgraphia. You will see, I have a sample here of somebody, uh, of course, with that horrible writing. Um, an early sign to this is when we don't, we can't match patterns. So like that's right. why puzzles are so good for kids and why you, you know, if you have a child that's in therapy, they do those block designs where you take three blocks and you make a wall and then you make a pyramid and then you make a chicken right. and all of that stuff. So it's that like kind of, um, the, the, the process of seeing the shapes in um, right. letters that creates this, um, this deficiency. So what are we looking for specifically with an SLD in written expression? Or okay, so you're gonna see, I mean, the most obvious one is gonna be in their writing. You're gonna see awful, awful handwriting. You're going to, see, but know that there's more, but that is part of it. or. Maybe it's not as bad, but they're putting their thoughts on paper might be, you know, very difficult for them where normally they could tell you about the whole day at the beach and then you ask them to write about it and they've got two sentences. So there's going to be, of course, that terrible handwriting, the shape of the letters, um, they're going to have excessive, uh, excessive erasing, poor spacing. You also see bad grammar. That's a, that's a big one, bad spelling, bad grammar, inconsistent or awkward grip, heavy pressure. I've had some that were the, you know, one word you could tell they really pressed hard on and others, it was just very light. Um, they have trouble copying words or sentences. Um, they avoid writing tasks. Like I said, if they have to write about what they did all summer, you know, that's horrible. And by then they're playing and, you know, picking on other kids or getting in trouble with the teacher and it's because it's so hard for them. So, um, and then there is gonna be some of that reversal, but usually it's past, all kids will have some reversals and then usually about second grade, third grade, they shouldn't be having any of those reversals. So sometimes that you might see that too. And I have a, a sample of that. You see how there's, how the writing is kind of bad. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's bad. So, Oh, and another thing you'll see like capital letters where they shouldn't be, or maybe they're doing all capital letters or that's up and down. 
um, spelling and reading. This is one thing that I'll tell you in this world. You're going to hear a lot of people say, oh, well, it doesn't matter if their handwriting's atrocious. Now everything's on computers, you know? Well, I mean, when you have a sign-up sheet somewhere for, for soccer and you're signing up to bring snacks and you write like a five-year-old, and I've tell, I'll tell you guys, I have seen middle school and high, high school kids that write their name and it looks like a like a kindergartner did it. it's really sad and that is something you really need to work on that yes the assistive technology the computers and all that are going to help but you still want to address the writing issues and you want to address the spelling even if they're spell check uh, the spelling this slide here is from uh louisa motes um she had that you know they've done and some other researchers uh, and they've said that spelling and reading are related. There's a high correlation between the two. So uh, spelling does matter. It, it can also be a red flag that there is some issues with, with the way that that person hears those, those sounds and those letters, that phonemic awareness. Yeah, and that's what we talked about earlier with this, the dyslexia. I think an important thing about the writing is similar to what I said about accessing literacy for just kind of everyday function, like you said, baking brownies. You know, with writing, like I had um, a really stressful time period in my life and I see, Jack was having some medical stuff and I see a um, functional medicine doctor, an integrative doctor, and she had me write um, every day three things that were worrying me and then three things for which I was grateful. Just like little bitty things, like I worried um, that I hadn't turned the crock pot on, you know, that kind of thing, because I have anxiety, so I'll perseverate, ruminate, whatever you want to call it, on like just totally bizarre things. And she said, so there is science that shows that when you write things down, when you write down your worries, you now she said this more articulately, but basically you take something from like a worry center in your brain and you put it right. in this written expression piece, like you get it out of that part of your brain and you put it in right. this like motor spot, this writing spot, which right. was fascinating to me. And I'll tell you, it worked. Now, I don't know if that's placebo because like she told me it was going to work and it did, but I kept on my dresser a little notebook where I wrote, like I was also tracking other things for her. And so I wrote, you know, like my weight and that kind of stuff. And then I wrote these three things about which I worried and three things about which I was grateful. And oh my gosh, I felt so much better, so much better. And like, if you can't write, yes, maybe you could type that, but the actual writing piece of it is what she yes. said the science supported. And there's lots of other benefits to writing. I mean, you know, there's some sentimentality to writing too. That if there wasn't, we wouldn't have our grandmother's recipes on pillows and washcloths and, right. all, and all those things. So um, yeah, I mean, right. practical. Well, they've, neurologically, they've proven that. There's that hand, that hand-eye coordination, that, that, process of writing all the dyslexia programs are going to have some component of it where they're either having the child you know up in the air writing the word finger you know in the air kind of uh writing 
the uh, the letter that you're working on. So it's that multi-sensory doing all those things at the same time. Yeah. Um, I love this article. I recommend all of you read it when, if you want to learn more about the importance of spelling. And I love the title of it, How Words Cast Their Spell. And it's not real technical of a of an article. So it's not like you have to know, you know, it's not a technical journal sort of uh, article where it might be hard to understand. I just thought it was really a great article on the relationship between spelling and how important it is with language and the interconnection of all that. So I put that on there. I agree. And I'm going to reread it, but I really liked it when I read it the Good. first time. So what about speech and language disorders that occur with dyslexia? Okay, so you're going to have the expressive language, that's uh, speaking, then the receptive, that's when someone's speaking to you and you're uh, internalizing that language, receiving it, you know, the receptive language. Then there's articulation disorders, like I said, you know, my daughter couldn't say her R's, so th those are going to be in there. Articulation can also be stuttering, so those are, those are in there, and then there's the pragmatic language disorders which is our social language, you'll see, I mean, I, I have students that have autism and they're on the spectrum and they also have dyslexia. And yeah. sometimes that gets missed because a lot of students with autism will have trouble with comp reading comprehension. However, if you, and so there's that tendency to say, oh, well, you know, it's because of that pragmatic language issue and in reading comprehension, you have to really inference and understand this and that. And so that's why they're having these issues or whatever, but some of them actually have the issues with decoding as well. And, and they, they actually have the dyslexia, you know? And so you want to, if they do have that, you want that identified because you know, all those dyslexia programs, even if you have a child with autism or a child with Down syndrome, the, these dyslexia programs work really good for any child that has a problem with reading. Yeah. A lot of that research is done there. And so um, it may need to be um, sort of given, the intervention may need to be given differently maybe a different pacing or jumping around from one, maybe, for example, that child with autism that only has issues with comprehension, maybe they skip the decoding uh, parts of the lesson because that child may already know how to decode and they go on to the areas of dyslexia intervention that work with comprehension. Yeah, or you, you have to figure out the expressive language part of it oftentimes. And that yes. is a real science um to doing right. right so what about dyscalculia okay so that you're they're going to have problems with basic calculation number lines route uh rounding graphs estimations calendar time place value i'll give you an example um when my daughter when i would give her money to go we go up to the table right i mean to the uh, checkout to get clothes and she loved clothes whenever she went to did tutoring it wasn't getting her it, it wasn't giving her a toy or something she wanted money and then she wanted to go get a cute t-shirt or whatever i mean at young young age but it was so funny so we would go out and that would be her thing to go she'd get a cute dress or a t-shirt after doing a lot of tutoring and she would pull the the 
let's say the amount came out to 1950 and she would put that $20 bill. If you think about it, I, I never understood. Um, they never, she couldn't understand what was, how much to give, because if you think about it, something that says 1950, they know that, you know, that's a big number. They don't see that period. And so they're seeing the nine, oh my gosh, that's bigger. And this 20 has a two and a zero in it, you know, and, and this 1950 for the total, and she would just keep putting money. She didn't really understand, but, um, you know, it's the way that they see the, the number line in their head. If you were to line out with with numbers, let's say we would get a stack of cards that had one through 10 or something. And you said, okay, she would know that one through 10, that 10 was higher than one, but she couldn't see it on the line. Mm -hmm. So if you were to give her those numbers and have her line it out and you randomly gave it, she might put a two and, and, and a 10 right next to each other and not leave space for those other letter, uh, those other numbers. I don't know if I'm, I'm probably not explaining it right. No, and that's just know that it's number line. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. And I've read a lot about it, but it, it, it's very interesting how their brain looks at numbers and the number line. So just know you're going to see a lot of problems with, with um, right and left uh, graphs, you know, seeing how the direction of numbers, uh, mental math, time, um, they're, they're going to have that problem. Now, there are a lot of kids with dyslexia may have problems with their um, uh, learning their alpha, um, sorry, not their alphabet, their um, multiplication tables. So don't, don't think that just because you're, uh, you're a uh, dyslexic child doesn't know their multiplication tables, so they must be they must have dyscalculia. A lot of them will have trouble with just memorizing rote facts and memorizing their multiplication, and it doesn't mean that they have dyscalculia. Now, if they do, if some of their numbers come out in testing where they're having trouble with the multiplication and they have some math concepts and some other things, then you could go down that route. But I'm just saying this that I've that I've noticed this in some of the testing, a lot of kids with with dyslexia just memorizing those rote facts they might have trouble with, but they're doing good in math and sometimes even very good in math. Yeah. Gifted. Okay. So this is what I think. I am so excited about the information that you have given us. This is huge and girthy and so, so important. And it is like, I'm sure that the people that are listening um, and watching on YouTube are like, hallelujah, you're speaking my language. Give me more. Daphne, you're so smart. And you know, the, the cool thing about this is it's like a resource roundup, what you have given us. You have given us such a wealth of information that comes from other experts and studies and your own experience and as a parent and as an advocate and the science. And I want to know more. So um, before we sign off for this part of today's podcast, I have one little piece that I'd like to ask you if you could foreshadow. And then I definitely want to have you on for another episode. Okay. 
So what okay. I love for you, when you and I talked one time, you talked about the example of a car and yes. you had a slide about the car. So it's like, um, can you talk about that example? Just a okay. little bit before shadow, cause I'd like to have you on again. Okay. So what I try and explain to parents about the way when, when you're thinking about, is the school doing it right? How do I know with the data that they're giving me? Um, and when we talk about dyslexia and reading, there's a lot of factors that go, a lot of factors that go into dyslexia, sort of um, that kind of, they have some strengths and weaknesses. Remember how I was talking about the subtest? So maybe the the comprehension is a little bit better but maybe the decoding or the speed or they're having trouble with accuracy and so there's all these different areas that you measure when you're looking at dyslexia and so i tell parents you have to assume the dyslexia is the car and all these measurements that they're doing measure different parts of the car now the goal is to get the car going right you want the car to go and when you're dyslexic, the car's not moving, right? But cars cannot move for many different reasons, right? Maybe there's a flat, maybe it's something with the engine, maybe there's something with the windshield, right? Like one of it's the ADHD is the tire, maybe the engine is the reading disorder or, or a language or whatever. So you have these different parts of, of dyslexia where we see there are weaknesses that we need to improve. If you don't know what it is that they're measuring and what are the issues with your child, so to speak, the car, if your child was the car and there's different areas of weakness with the car, you want to make sure that the tools they're using to measure are actually measuring the areas or the issues that are going on. So I'll have a parent say, you know, hey, we couldn't read the brownie box like we were talking about, you know, my seventh grader, but they've been telling me all these years that he's doing fine. Well, what's been going on is they, you know, that child may have the flat tire and the engine and the windshield wipers. And so what they've been doing for years is they said, well, look, here's the flat tire and here's the, uh, the air pressure gauge and we measured it and it was flat and then we put air in it and look the air keeps going up and now we're seeing this tool here's the air pressure gauge look at it right here you know he's made progress the the tires going up well the car still can't go because of the other problems with it and so you could feel like maybe that child is making progress and it doesn't mean that they really weren't making progress i mean the tire did fill up and that tool really does measure that but it wasn't the whole picture. And so that is what I get into when I sort of, after I've described dyslexia and the comorbidity, I start to talk about when you're in those meetings with the school and you're talking about their progress, you're making sure that they are measuring what you're actually need. What are the components you need so that they can read that brownie box? Yes, yes, yes. Will you come back on and talk about yes. that? Yes, I will. And I feel bad. I'll also talk about like all the programs because I promise you parents, your eyes are going to glaze over. They're going to use terminology and I'll break it down. I promise you will not have to memorize any program names or funny stuff. I'm going to 
tell you real simple things on how you can know whether or not uh, there's progress there. So, so good. Thank you so much for joining me. You are just amazing. I really Thanks. appreciate it. That's good foreshadowing for episode three. We're going to wrap it up with Daphne next week when we talk about how do we know if they're doing it right at school. Be sure to tune in next week for part three when we wrap up this podcast with Daphne. I'll see you then.